The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And I do hope that uh, you all can be here. I, I want to lift the roof off of this place. Really, you know, the party, celebration, worshiping the Lord and the, the glory of the Lord will come down. Okay, let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, today. Thank you for those who are here in the house. We thank you for those that are listening on radio, those who are watching online, wherever they may be. We pray that we might hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say to us for such a time as this. May it be a word that is uh, encouraging. May it be a word that is inspiring. May a word be a word that uh, will put fire within our soul and strength within our faith and courage within our hearts. And we pray that you would be glorified. We ask all of these things in the mighty, worthy, precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Okay, so the title of the message is The King's Secrets, part two. So this is last week's message was obviously part one. Jesus starts this new thing where he is teaching in parables. And he's doing that so that he, he can both reveal things to kind of the family on the inside, but also to conceal things from those who are just critical, judgmental, they got a religious spirit, and they're just trying to attack him or whatever. He could tell a parable, which is a story, a natural story that has a heavenly meaning. So the first parable we're going to look at, um, Jesus explains the parable he told of the wheat and the tares, which we talked about last week. But fruit in our lives, here's the first life lesson, fruit in our lives is the test of true salvation. So beginning in verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away, and he went into the house. So we now go into kind of a uh, private meeting. So his disciples came to him saying, now explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and he said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear." So Jesus lays out and kind of begins describing the meaning and the application of this parable. The first thing is, back in verse 37, uh, he who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Jesus is talking about himself, and he gives himself this title, the Son of Man, which means I am a human being. Uh, the Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite titles to apply to himself and his ministry, why? Because he came from heaven. 
He came from the kingdom and the eternal realm of heaven. But he came down through the incarnation to be a man. He became the son of man. So this is a special title that was given concerning the Messiah. So there's a scripture, uh, and I've given you one verse. It's actually two verses, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel the prophet began to prophesy into the future what the Messiah would be like. Let's read this out loud. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, the next verse goes on to say, and to him, this Son of Man, who's coming in the clouds of heaven… So that's kind of this mixture of, wait a second, Daniel is looking in the nighttime, and he's looking into the heavens, he's praying, and he's seeing divine, supernatural screen happening on the heavens, and he sees a man that he calls the Son of Man, but the Son of Man is not on the earth. The Son of Man is in heaven, and he's coming with the power of heaven and the glory of heaven and the clouds of heaven, the clouds being the realm of the kingdom of heaven. The rabbis interpreted this as a unique description of the coming Messiah. He would be a man, the Son of Man, but he would also be no ordinary man, but he would be some kind of superman because he comes from heaven with the clouds of heaven. And Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 goes on to talk about the rule and the reign and the dominion and the everlasting nature of this kingdom. It's kind of a mixture of the Son of Man and and heaven all together. Now, what's interesting is that the Jewish rabbis said If we, the Jewish people, are worthy when the Messiah comes and we are worthy of messianic redemption, the Messiah will come in the clouds. They said, on the other hand, if we're not walking close with God and we are not worthy, He will come on a donkey. Isn't that interesting? That's their comments on Zechariah 9.9. See, they had a problem. In the Old Testament, you had one prophet, Daniel, saying, wow, I see the Son of Man coming from heaven with the glory of heaven and the power of heaven coming from heaven down to the earth. So that's one picture. Then you go to Zechariah, the prophet, chapter 9, verse 9, and Zechariah says, well, I, I see the Son of Man or the Messiah. He's humble. He's lowly. He's sitting on a little donkey, and he's coming in. So they saw these two uh, pictures, and they didn't know really quite what to do with it. So then they said, well, if we're worthy, I guess they'll come in the clouds. If we're not worthy, he comes on a donkey. What they did not realize is those two pictures of the Messiah were talking about two comings. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, many of the, of the Jewish people, because of these two pictures, one, he's ruling, he's reigning, he's like David, he's a conqueror. And, they, and then they had a, this other completely different picture of this humble servant, lowly, comes on donkey, uh, uh, and, and he's suffering. He's called the suffering servant. So they, they have two opposite pictures. Guess what they decided? There must be two messiahs. Messiah, the son of David, is going to be powerful, heavenly. Messiah, the son of Joseph, they call kind of the humble, suffering servant one. So they said there, there's probably, there must be two messiahs. 
what unfolded and what we now know is it's not two messiahs, but it's one messiah with two comings. And the first time he came lowly to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Then he rose, he ascended up into heaven. He's been sitting there for 2,000 years waiting for the day his dad says, now go get your bride, which you bought and paid for with your own life and blood. And when he comes back, he's coming in power and in glory and in the clouds and the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming down. So that's what we're getting ready for. Now, the good seeds are specified as the sons and daughters of the kingdom. God is planting heavenly uh, seeds. Whenever a child of God is born again, it's like a heavenly seed planted in the earth. And the Messiah plants uh, the kingdom in the field, which is the world, and through the work of his children. But the enemy comes and plants weeds in the midst of that. They could be right side a real believer, but they're not really born again. They have no fruit. There's no wheat in them, but they look like wheat, but they're actually a tear, which is a weed. And so he says they're going to be together. The enemy is the devil. And what Jesus wanted for them to understand is this will be the constant battle. There will be a constant battle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And not until the end of the age will the harvest come. And that's what we've experienced for 2,000 years. Um, And that's what continues to go on. Look, you can look horizontally and see the political, geopolitical, economic struggles and battles on a human level, but if that's as far as you can see, uh, your sight is limited. For those who have the Spirit of God within them, we lift our eyes, there's a whole other layer of things going on in the spiritual realm. Those angels, loyal and faithful to God, that are ministering spirits under the kingdom of God and planting the seeds around the earth, but then there's the devil and his demonic hordes who are opposing the kingdom, and it's a spirit of Antichrist fighting. So that's going on always behind the scenes. Now, it's interesting, at the end of the age, when harvest time comes, Uh, And and God, at that point, at the end, that's when he separates uh, the wheat from the chaff, uh, the wheat from the tares. The reapers are the angels. Angels know. Look, so there's angels everywhere. I believe that every one of us has at least one guardian angel. Some of you require two or three. (laughs) They will be so thrilled when you finally get to heaven. But um, so wherever we go, there's, there's angels, and then there's fallen spirits, and so there's, there's a lot of things that are going on. But we, we appreciate the angels. By the way, if you've never done this before, it might be encouraging to you, and, and the Lord kind of prompted me this last service, um, to do a study on angels. I, I have a book to recommend to you. I don't remember the exact title, but it was written by a man well-known, Billy Graham. At one point in his own life and ministry, the great evangelist who went around the world He became fascinated with angels because he knew that they were also involved in the harvest and evangelism, and they have a role, So, but they're scattered verses throughout the Bible. So what he did is he put all the scriptures about angels and put it into a book. So I recommend that. I think you would be very blessed and very encouraged to know that the angels work with us and are ministering spirits unto the saints. Uh, we're not alone. And by the way, their job is to watch over you, care for you, protect you, and help you. And their last role is to help usher you into the arms of the Lord. 
That's their last job. Now, um, it is interesting that when Jesus said when they were sleeping, the enemy planted tares. It is when God's people are asleep at the wheel, so to speak, that the enemy works. So we need to be watching and waiting. And I know that I mentioned this a week ago, but I am mentioning it again because I have heard recently uh, of different people who know the gospel, they've been to church, supposedly they have prayed and given their lives to the Lord, who know better, but they, you know, the enemy works on us. I mean, you know, he's been around a long time. He knows human beings. He knows our weakness. And then he lies about God. He lies about the church or something happens and he blames, look, where's God? Blah, blah, blah. The next thing you know, you take a step back. You're not in the word. You're not in prayer. You're not in fellowship, but you're still struggling. And you go, maybe there's some other spiritual path I can, you know, you want to go sideways. I want to warn you that, yes, there are other voices that you can, other frequencies, let's call it, that you can tap into, that are spiritual. There are real spirits. There are other messages. There are other religions. There are other paths, other gurus, other ways, and they do have something to them more than just human reason or philosophy, but beware of them because they, they, they lure you in and razzle and dazzle you with something that is obviously supernatural. But I want to I, I tell you as graciously and lovingly and as a shepherd that as I possibly can, uh, that they, they, they all are within a range. They, when you boil it all down, they all end up at the same thing. They all say the same things. And they are demonically charged. At a certain point, it takes a turn They don't do it right away. They're very patient. They wait. Uh, They know human beings, and they set you up, and they will use you. They're not your friend. They will use you, and then they will abuse you, and the moment you scream out and cry, what have you done to me, and help me, and save me, they will laugh at you and mock you. They are in for your… it's demonic, let's just say. Uh, It's a world of confusion, and it can launch people tragically. As bad as you thought you were here, now you've opened those every window and door to the demonic realm, maybe without realizing it. The next thing you know, you end up being dropped off seven times worse than you were at the beginning. And by the way, once they got you where they want you, that's when they begin zoning in on you better just take yourself out, the suicidal thoughts and all the barrage that comes with that. So I want you to read with me 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read this out loud together. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The next couple of verses go on to talk about they will deny that Jesus is the only way, the life, and the truth, or that He is God manifest in the flesh, the very essence and story of the gospel. That's why Jesus said, look, God has provided you the way, the life, the truth, the door, the window that lets in the light of heaven and the light of God. Everything else will be against you. They are, they are spirits, but they may not be of God. So, uh, if it has to align with the Word of God and be consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, avoid it like the plague. And if there's anyone who has opened the doors 
uh, to that realm, you must close them willfully and intentionally, shut the door, ask forgiveness, repent of the idolatry, and run to Jesus with everything you've got as never before. Can I hear an amen on that? Okay, let's go on to the next one. Verse 44, this is just one verse, the hidden treasure. Um, So Jesus says in verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, I mentioned here that the hidden treasure is Israel uh, and her neighbors, and I want to tell you in a moment what that's all about. But hidden treasure, I mean, everybody likes, you know, treasure, hidden treasure, Indiana Jones, let's go find the Holy Grail or whatever it may be. And many will take this uh, parable and interpret it to mean that the sinner, you know, finds Christ and the gospel, and so they give up all that they have and all they possess to gain Jesus and be saved. That's a nice sentiment and a nice thought, but uh, that interpretation presents a lot of problems. In fact, I think it's got it actually uh, backwards. Here's the first problem. Number one, Jesus is not a hidden treasure. Uh, Jesus is perhaps the most famous human being who has ever lived or walked on planet Earth. Number two, the sinner cannot find Christ uh, because we are blind, we're lost, we're spiritually dead, we're stubborn. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 tells us we're in big trouble. Jesus turns that around and says, no, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm the one who found you. You didn't find me. And thirdly, no sinner could ever purchase salvation. Once you find the gospel and eternal life and forgiveness and heaven, you you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you can't do enough good deeds to be good enough or purchase it. It's the opposite. Jesus found you. He was looking for you. He's been looking forward to you and pursuing you. God's pursuing love. Billy Graham used to talk about the hound of heaven. You know, like he's, he's after, he's been seeking you to, like the prodigal son and the father that runs to the son. Uh, he, he finds us. And then once he found us, he gave up everything that he had in order that he might have us. Now, I also want to say in a special way, Israel is also another layer. So sometimes it's not either or, but in layers it can be both and. I believe that in a way, Israel is also one of God's hidden treasures. Uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Let's read this out loud. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. God placed the nation of Israel long ago in the world to bring him glory, and he was wanting through them to provoke jealousy to the rest of the nations that they would also come to him. But they failed in that. As I mentioned, they fell into idolatry. God sent them in discipline for 70 years to Babylon. After that, they came back. They rebuilt the temple. But again, then he sent his son, and he was rejected. It became a nation hidden. And many people believe then that the God was it, you know, that's it, he's done with them, but I believe not. Though they were scattered, 
uh, they were hidden. They were buried, and God has saved a remnant out of them from each generation. But in the end times, I believe that hiddenness would be brought out because it's one of the timepieces that God has. It lets us know on earth. It's kind of like a natural, uh, visible sign that we kind of get to know generally what time it is. And this hidden treasure he would bring back to the original homeland. So this has huge implications, but uh, go with me to John chapter 11, verse 51. Let's read this together. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, the high priest is talking about Jesus and, oh, should this guy has thought he was a Messiah, and we don't think that he is, and the high priest is going, well, maybe it's expedient that one man die uh, so that Rome won't come punish us, and then the nation will be saved. And, and so John is saying he did not realize that he actually was prophesying the truth, that Jesus would, in fact, die for the nation and for Israel. Now, we know that on the cross, Jesus died for the whole world, but He also, in a special way, died for Israel. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. Let's read this out loud. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare His generation? For He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. So this is Isaiah talking about the Messiah and dying for them in a special way. So the nation suffered judgment and seeming destruction in 70 AD, and yet in God's sight, He hid them for a season only to be revealed and brought out again in glory and on its way uh, to the final coming of His kingdom from heaven to the earth. So that's why I believe there is a prophetic future for Israel, they're, you know, kind of the centerpiece of God's last day's plans, born on May 14th, 1948. But I have another scripture I want you to jot down. I didn't put it in your notes, but someday I'd like to talk about it more, preach on it more. Zechariah chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. Because a lot of you know that I talk a lot about Israel and its prophecy and so forth, and that is all right and true, but it does not stop there. In Zechariah chapter 10, in the last days when God would bring back uh, the Jewish people and, you know, the nation that was dead for 2,000 years gets born again, God said, I'm not only going to be reaching out to my Jewish people, but I'm going to reach, be reaching out to all of her neighbors, all of the countries who touch Israel or border Israel. And Zechariah chapter 10 specifically says, my spirit is going to move beyond bringing my Jewish people into the revelation of who I am and who my son is, but my spirit will move beyond the borders of Israel into Lebanon. And then he mentions Gilead, which is modern-day Jordan, and other places then that speak of Syria. So this is not my main point, but I am dropping this nugget of truth into you right here, right now that those who are working on behalf of the kingdom of heaven, not only in Israel, but in Lebanon right now, in Jordan right now, that's got a million and a half refugees from Syria, and, and in Syria itself, there has never been a time in church history of 2,000 years where multitudes are having dreams and visions 
of Jesus or coming to them. They're having spiritual, supernatural experiences or divine healings that are happening or all, and it's all pointing them, and they're literally pouring into the kingdom of heaven. Unprecedented. Never seen anything like it in that region of the world, and that is what is happening right now. It is the beginning drops of that glory from heaven that is on its way. I am telling you, God is moving. God is in charge. God is on the throne. Men are pawns. God is moving history according to His will, His way, and what He wants to happen, and there's not a thing the devil or the Antichrist or anybody else can do about it. It's happening now. Powerful. So, yes, there is a reborn modern Israel, but modern Israel is far from where she ought to be spiritually. But God is at work, and God is moving in that region. And yes, He does see that region as a treasure and a glorious kingdom that is on its way. All right, let's, um, let's go to the next one. It's called the Pearl of Great Price. Probably a lot of you have heard this one before, but verse 45, it says, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great ultimate price, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now, I'm sure that a lot of ladies here can appreciate various uh, gems and stones, but there has always been something uh, elusive and, and beautiful and unique uh, about pearls. And I believe that the pearl of great price is the church. It's a picture of the church. And the church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, being made one and the body, and then ultimately what will become this beautiful bride, uh, which will be wed to the Messiah as our heavenly bridegroom, which is mind-boggling, that we would be the bride married to the Son of God and rule and reign with Him is amazing. But unlike any other jewel, a pearl is a unity. It cannot be carved like a diamond can or a sapphire or an emerald uh, or cut, it is whole, it is to remain whole, its beauty is its translucent luminosity as a unit. So is the church. And also, you know how a pearl is made. A pearl is actually made in a very unusual way. Again, what a great parable in the natural realm. you got an oyster. An oyster is an extremely sensitive little sea creature and a little grain of sand gets into the oyster and, you know, wounds it. And then because of that little one tiny grain of sand wound, the oyster begins secreting uh, this solution that grows and builds layer upon layer upon layer of this beautiful thing that grows within the oyster called a pearl. So like a pearl, the church is the product of suffering. And in, and, and in some strange way, it is that suffering that is the cause of producing this beautiful translucent. I mean, people die for it. They, they sacrifice for it. And here's the example of he found the, the greatest pearl of the universe and sold everything that he had in order that he might have it. Well, suffering is also involved with the gospel because the price that he paid in order to get the pearl on his part was to die for the church. 
His suffering on the cross is what made her new birth even possible. And again, a pearl grows so gradually you cannot see it growing. Just like the church from its infancy over the years and through the centuries has grown little by little, layer upon layer, gradually as the Holy Spirit has gone beyond the borders of Israel into every nation and around the earth, now for generations, for 2,000 years, convicting people and converting sinners. There's another way we can say that a pearl is a great picture of the church. No one can see the making of a pearl because it's obviously hidden in the shell of the oyster under the waters. No one can see the growth of the church because it's happening hidden under the waters of the nations and every nation, language, kindred, and tribe. So the church is among the nations like the waters of the sea, but one day God will reach into the ocean and the nations. He will pull out His oyster. He will reveal the beautiful pearl in all of its beauty and glory for all the universe to see. So despite the devil's subtle work in this world, Jesus Christ is building and forming His church. He he has sold everything that He has in order that He might have her, and He is on His way in His own time to come and bring that beautiful pearl into the heavenly gates. So, Let's move on uh, to the last one. This is the last parable. We're just about done. Beginning in verse 47, the parable of the dragnet. And I believe this is a great parable about the saving of the nations. God not only saves individuals and then saving families, but He saves nations. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down, and they gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, "'Have you understood all these things?' And they said unto Him, "'Yes.' Lord. And then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So this is talking about the gospel going, you know, like a net around the world. And it it collects all kinds of different uh, creatures, (laughs) some that are worth keeping and then putting into the ships, and then others that are a refuse have no value and have no worth, whatever, and are rejected and then burned in the fire. So what Jesus is saying in part here is that the preaching of the gospel, the net, goes out to the whole world, but it does not necessarily convert the whole world. There are those who will hear and believe and see and respond and be born again and bear fruit and rewarded. And there are others who will reject it who will deny it, who will run from it, uh, have nothing to do with it, be separated from it, and then that will be their eternal destiny. And ultimately, that that will happen at the very, very end. By the way, um, you know, once the end comes, it says it comes so fast, it's too late to try to remedy it once you're caught in the net and everybody's being divided up. 
You have to decide beforehand who you want to be, whose you are, uh, to whom do you belong. The Bible never says, think about it and get saved tomorrow. It says, today, if you hear the message, you hear his voice, and you feel the Spirit tugging in your heart, don't wait. The Bible never promises tomorrow. You say, well, I'll do this, I'll do that. Don't say you'll do this or that. You have no control over anything. God controls everything. Every beat of your heart, every breath that you take, it's not yours. You were made by God. You are owned by the Creator, but He wants a relationship. We have to reciprocate and open our heart to Him. Uh, So today is the day of salvation. Harden not your heart and receive Him. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.